Good early evening, everyone from the East Coast of the United States. This is Danny Haifong for another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. I will allow those of you who are coming in to get settled. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, I am doing this episode after a stream that I finished up not too long ago, an hour and a half, a couple hours ago on Shinzo Abe's legacy. As you all may know, a couple days ago he was killed. Uh, Shinzo Abe was killed in Nara, Japan, shot by a makeshift gun. It was, it was quite something. Uh, but it, it made, it went viral. It's something that, um, that's been talked about a lot, but especially over social media, people have been talking about this. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important to talk about Shinzo Abe's legacy. Uh, he was killed on technically July 8th, but of course the time difference is, is kind of crazy. Um, so really it's, it's a couple days ago uh, from the perspective of someone like me who lives on the east coast of the United States. In any event, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're going to talk about Shinzo Abe's legacy, but we're really going to talk about the broader Cold War chaos that is really afflicting Western imperialism right now. It is something else. Uh, We've seen just over and over and over again the political situations in the West, the United States, the UK, France, and uh, now we're talking about one of the West's puppets, which is Japan. Uh, also now going through uh, what is an example of political chaos. So uh, thank you all for joining me. Be sure to share this room uh, if you are so obliged. But I want to definitely have a conversation. So please do also get in the queue if you have a comment, question. I do like comments to remain two, at two minutes, uh, depending on how big the room is. Uh, but it would be nice if people can keep their comments to two minutes maximum in order to avoid monopolization of this time. Because as you all may know, if you've been here before, I generally stay on for an hour or under. Uh, Sometimes it goes over uh, depending on how the conversation goes. So yes, please do get in the queue if you have a comment or you have a question. With that said, uh, what I've been really paying attention to lately is a few developments. I mean, we've had, right, France, uh, Emmanuel Macron's so-called centrist alliance lost its majority in parliament, which on the one hand is very interesting and positive because it means his labor reform will likely be stymied. uh, But it is an indication that there is a political crisis of legitimacy afoot in France, of course, the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vests, and, and other late, uh, examples of unrest, labor, and otherwise, have been telling us that for quite some time. But uh, nonetheless, uh, France is undergoing what seems to be a, a political crisis right now. Uh, you all may have been following the trending headlines, uh, Twitter, wherever you get your social media, wherever you get your media. The United Kingdom is going through what is arguably a more acute political crisis. You had uh, the day before Shinzo Abe was killed, you had Boris Johnson resign. So his administration is no more. They're scrambling for a replacement. We'll see how that process goes. But Boris Johnson is out as prime minister of the United Kingdom after a flurry of resignations within his cabinet and what looked like a build-up to a no-confidence vote in Parliament. He avoided that by resigning, but he put up somewhat of a fight. But this is really indicative, again, of a political crisis. And then, of course, you have Joe Biden. What is there to say about Joe Biden? Joe Biden's polling numbers are down. They continue to decline. seems like every other day I see a video of Joe Biden stumbling over his words. I see a video of Joe Biden reading the teleprompter uh, during the executive order over Roe v. Wade, where he 
protected through this executive order, just some of the abortion rights that were covered under the Roe v. Raid ruling. So it took him weeks to address that. And then when he was talking about it in his uh, presser, in his speech, he read the teleprompter word for word. So he read the words, I believe it was repeat line. So anyway, what is there to say about Joe Biden other than the fact that he probably more so than anywhere else in the West, in the, in the U.S.-led imperialist order, reflects this crisis of legitimacy. And as I've been saying, the United States is just that undemocratic. And so it should come as no surprise that despite the fact that he's probably the least popular of all the politicians I just named, he is more protected than others because the way that U.S. politics works is that even if there is a crisis of confidence, other president just serves out their term unless they're impeached. But of course, as you saw during the Trump saga, it takes a lot to impeach a, US, a, sit, a sitting U.S. president. It takes a whole lot. It, it is not a simple process. And so that's not going to happen with Joe Biden because unlike the ridiculous excuses made for him by the Democratic Party establishment that he can't do anything, that he, the filibuster, they always talk about it. He actually does have a very small majority in Congress, which allows him to have security politically for now. And so the United States is in a political crisis because it's so clear that the Democratic Party is in trouble, that the presidency of Joe Biden is in trouble. And as you all may have been paying attention to the news about the economic situation, right? There's runaway inflation. Supposedly it's being curbed a bit now, but the damage has been done. People's confidence is really low. And this is all a prelude to a potential recession, quote unquote, or what we Marxists like to call uh, economic crises, capitalist crises, uh, that is on the horizon. So people's confidence is really shot right now. And uh, there's just a lot of disillusionment and a lot of dissatisfaction going around in, in the West. And so today, if, if there were no callers in the queue, I was just going to talk about what does the new Cold War have to do with this? What does it have to do with this decline in public opinion, this crisis of confidence in the ruling establishment across the West? First, I think we have to look at the fact that the United States is right creating these quote-unquote alliances around the world to spearhead its new Cold War against Russia and China, whether we're talking about NATO, whether we're talking about AUKUS, whether we're talking about the Quad, we're talking about the European Union, which has been organized and, and corralled like a bunch of poodles in a cage and ultimately ordered to do what the United States wants it to do in regards to Russia. Uh, there are so many examples of the ways in which the United States is trying to take advantage of its junior partners to achieve its objectives in this new Cold War. And so the new Cold War, I mean, the new Cold War has a lot to do with um, cut the Pentagon says, are we having a silent meditation? Can anyone hear me? Can you all hear me? I really hope that I am not silent right now. Uh, just in the chat, somebody say they can hear me. All right, good. <laughs> Thanks. I've had this happen before, and it's really annoying. <laughs> I wish there was a way to test the sound. Um, but anyway, all right, I'm going to continue. So first we have to look at how these alliances are, are, are shaping up to create this situation. For one, the entire European Union has jumped on board the United States' sanctions regime against Russia. And the sanctions regime against Russia has indeed 
blown back already at the United States and the West because it has created some of these so-called supply chain shortages. And that's because the United States and the European Union are creating disruptions in the so-called quote-unquote supply chains that they can't control, especially around energy. But it's not just energy, it's food, it's wheat. Energy and food and, and wheat and these kind of things that Russia is a big exporter of, I mean, they're really important. <laughs> they're really important to the global capitalist economy. And so the United States and Europe intensifying these sanctions to the point of almost isol- trying to isolate Russia like it does to, for example, the DPRK, just doesn't work the same. And I want to also add that Russia, it hasn't worked for against Russia, right? Russia is not isolated. Russia has robust relationships outside of the West with China, with African countries, with La- countries in Latin America, with countries in Eurasia. And we haven't seen the damage done to Russia as intended. And so these sanctions are uh, are in danger of becoming permanent without any possibility for restructuring by the West to, to be able to absorb the shocks of them. So that's a part of this crisis, right? This runaway inflation, this economic instability is in part, not the entire uh, reason, but in part being facilitated by this proxy war that the U.S. and its junior partners are waging against Russia in Ukraine. And because there's no end in sight, that has led to a lot of panic, that has led to a lot of scrambling, and it's had a real impact on the global economy, and it's had a real impact on the so-called quote-unquote advanced capitalist countries, the advanced economies in the capitalist countries. So that's one thing that's that I mean that is one way that this new Cold War has blown back and it's one of the huge reasons it's creating or we're seeing this political instability in the West. But for most people in the West, in the United States in particular, there is another aspect to this that must be talked about, and that is that most people aren't necessarily thinking about the implications of, let's say, Russia, uh, the U.S.'s approach to Russia, the way that the West is encircling Russia and China, provoking these conflicts, and ultimately shooting themselves in the foot by trying to isolate countries that really can't be isolated due to their deep integration into uh, the global economic order. And that is, well, many people don't think about that there is, I think, an interesting trend happening where people are getting increasingly dissatisfied with the fact that their interests, their needs uh, are not being addressed whatsoever. And while there may not be this larger geopolitical or anti-imperialist analysis or anything like that, there is a broader anger over, well, you know, there's 50 billion plus going to Ukraine. I've had clients tell me this, my therapy clients who aren't necessarily thinking about geopolitics talk about it in this way. So I imagine there are many more people, right? And especially even Democratic Party voters who are really dissatisfied with this. And the polls show it, right? The polls really do show that people are not happy that the Russia-Ukraine's, Russia special military operation in Ukraine Uh, This whole conflict in Ukraine is causing this increased instability. And Felix in the chat says, when wasn't capitalism unstable? And and I agree. It's always screwing over workers. Now it is even more in terms of its intensification of that chaos and instability is really reigning supreme uh, with no real relief. And so I think... We have to look at it in that way, too, in that people's dissatisfaction about their conditions in front of them, right? The conditions that they see in front of them, these prices that are uh, unstable, continue to go up, people's cost of living is much higher right now, uh, right? With the gas prices were going up, people were making decisions about work and rent and all kinds of really, really unfortunate things. And then 
you have the incompetence that's just on display, whether it's in the United States over Roe v. Wade, whether it's about uh, the inability, right, to address the economic situation uh, that was happening in the UK. There was just a complete ignoring of the economic situation that these changes were being just allowed to happen. And it was angering people quite a lot. And there was also a lot of people angry with Boris Johnson saying, hey, you got to do something about this. And he was like, no. (laughs) And, and, And that is a message, I think, that cuts across imperialism right now, Western imperialism, that they've traded in, right, all of the attention, all of the focus on war, like this new Cold War, or on austerity and people are finding, and I think that's why there is this political illegitimacy building, that people are finding that it's quite obvious that their interests and attention and interests and attention are, is not being met. So that not, none of their needs and interests are being met. So that's, I mean, we can summarize it in that way. Um, so there's chaos. And then you had Shinzo Abe. Shinzo Abe was killed. He was killed during a speech. And this guy was still giving speeches. He was no longer the prime minister of Japan. Uh, he had been, uh, they recently had an election within the last year where he stepped down. Of course, no, everyone was pretty, uh, uh, I mean, anyone who pays attention to geopolitics knew that this wasn't going to change anything in terms of Japan, whether, uh, other than maybe escalate the foreign policy trend, which is Japan being a poodle of the U.S.'s new Cold War against China. So Shinzo Abe was killed, and you had a flurry of reactions. You had the Western media eulogizing Shinzo Abe, talking about how much he served them, and talking about how he was controversial because that's how they name folks whose so-called ideology is not necessarily aligned with what they would openly uh, uh, go along with. So you all may know that Shinzo Abe worshipped, right? He went to the Yusukuni shrine where Japanese war criminals are buried and he would worship them. He would literally bow down to them, show them respect. I mean, he is the grandson of Nobusuke Kishi, one of the worst war criminals of the 20th century. Uh, He who was instrumental in Japan's colonial empire, creating as my guest on the left lens talked about creating a Belgian colonial Congo-like slave system, a slave-driven developmental state where Koreans, Okinawans, uh, people across Asia in the so-called Manchuko of Manchuria, this developmental state, this colonial state, uh, they, um, oh, I'm getting echo. Huh, people are saying, okay, so I'm getting echo. That's strange. Um, Let me try something. I'm going to put myself on mute. Please do get in the queue, though. Hold on one second. All right, I'm going to put myself on mute. Okay, how do I sound now? Is that better? I just unplugged and replugged. I'm using a headset. So I don't know what's going on. My, My headset is... Uh, not the best. I should change my audio setup soon, but I'm always hesitant to do that because of all sorts of other things going on in life. So anyway, I was talking about uh, the uh, Manchurian Passage, the so-called Manchuko kind of developmental imperial state, and uh, just the, the most heinous war crimes were committed, the most heinous crimes against humanity, were committed during this time. And, I mean, it was a far-right fascistic development, developmental state. And and that's what reigned in Japan for many decades. It built up this huge empire, colonized Korea, colonized parts of Japan, I mean, China, um, colonized Okinawa and other parts, colonized Taiwan. Taiwan was colonized for a bit. Brutal 
you know, just slaughtering of indigenous people. So this is who Shinzo Abe worshipped, and this is the family he came from. He was a denier of these war crimes. He was a denier of this part of history of Japan. He also celebrated the use of essentially, quote-unquote, prostitutes or sex workers, like extremely exploited sex workers, destroy, right? Uh, destroy, Japan was well-known for enslaving women, Korean women, especially, uh, and he's been known to deny those crimes and basically call them, uh, you know, uh, sluts, in effect, that they chose this, right? So... He was a heinous actor, and, and one of the biggest le- one of the biggest parts of his legacy, of course, is the escalation of the new Cold War. And so, Japan, right, is instrumental in the pivot to Asia. Japan led the reorganization of the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Arrangement, with the United States, India. In Australia, Japan has more than 100 military bases, U.S. military bases. And Japan it can always be relied upon to uh, – he can always be relied upon, Japan and Shinzo Abe could be relied upon to do whatever the United States wanted. Uh, and, and that was clear even at the NATO summit right before he died where – in the lead up to the summit, Shinzo Abe literally was provoked. He was not even prime minister anymore, but he was still provoking on the question of Taiwan, saying that China needs to stop and that the West needs to come together and stop China's so-called preparations for the invasion of Taiwan, basically calling on the West to be even more aggressive. And so Japan was invited to the NATO summit, as was South Korea, who has a new, um, who has a new right wing president. And so this is who Shinzo Abe was, right? Uh, he was a fascist and it's important to not look at him as an individual, as uh, my uh, guest on today's show on the left lens said, he's part of an overall political trend in Japan that in effect was propped up after it was quote-unquote defeated in World War II. It was propped up through the Liberal Democratic Party, literally created by the CIA, to coalesce these right-wing forces with the political class, the business class, gangsters like the Yakuza, and it's held power virtually almost uninterrupted except for three short years over the last 64 years since 1955. And so this is who Shinzo Abe was. This is where he came from. This is where he comes from. And this is a huge part of the new Cold War, Japan and the pivot to Asia, the militarization of the Asia Pacific. Japan is right there. Right there, with thousands of U.S. troops, more than 100 military bases stationed in Japan alone. I mean, that is absolutely incredible to even think that a small island country like that could be so occupied. Uh, and so that's the legacy. That's the legacy of Shinzo Abe. And his murder, the murder of Shinzo Abe, was, a, was another indication that there is underneath the facade of hegemony, the facade of hegemony underneath it is a pressure cooker that leads to unforeseen consequences for this system. Unforeseen consequences. And and I think this is one of them, right? That That the unpopularity of the direction that, imperialism has gone in that it's affecting more and more people that it's creating more and more instability even just among people people are feeling the pain they're feeling the hurt they're feeling the level of disorganization that it's created and so we have more and more of these instances where there is political disruption political shifts 
However, one important thing about these political disruptions, like Abe's murder, like the change in governance from Boris Johnson, like the decline in public opinion of Joe Biden, all of them do not change the prevailing trend. The conditions that produce all of these things continue, which means that we are likely to see more of this unless there is an intervention, right? Unless there's an intervention that can bring a real positive kind of resistance, right? One that isn't rooted in just random acts of violence, which now I'm not mourning Shinzo Abe's loss, but I also question the political, if, if there was anything political behind it. It's unclear. Could have been, there are rumors that it could have been that the person was trying to target uh officials of a kind of like a right-wing religious cult, which Shinzo Abe supported. But it's unclear, right? Uh, the religious group could have been um, the, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, I forget the name of the group. But that's what we are being told, that this resident was attempting to murder them and not necessarily Abe, but miss. If you see the gun, you could see why it might have missed because <laughs> it was literally made. Um, but anyway, the point of the, the point of the matter is is that no matter no matter these developments, right? No matter you know the public opinion crises, the crises of legitimacy afflicting imperialism. Imperialism continues onward in the same direction. It doesn't change on its own volition. It's not going to end this new Cold War. It's going to continue to escalate it. And we're seeing that all of the time. Every new policy, we're seeing more and more escalations. And so that's what we can expect unless we interject, right? We interject and take advantage of some of this chaos begin to build some kind of base of power amongst ourselves. And that's the next step here, to build a base of power amongst ourselves rooted in peace and committed to peace and solidarity, committed to fighting this new Cold War, committed to fighting the militarization of the Asia-Pacific, committed to fighting neocolonialism and imperialism, committed to fighting the racism involved in this new Cold War, committed to countering the propaganda, so not just being against war, but also being against the propaganda and the lies that were told about China, right? that were told about this whole situation that relates to China and Russia too. So making sure that just as the United States is leading a two-pronged imperialist war on Russia and China, we have to also be committed to building peace and solidarity with Russia and China at all of the same, that we can't treat them differently, regardless of what uh, people's political uh, preferences may be. We should not be treating countries differently that are attacked by imperialism. We should be treating them with the same level of solidarity. And we should also be uh, rooting ourselves also in the struggles happening here, in the United States, in the West, so that uh, the new Cold War is relevant, right? That it becomes relevant to people. Uh, that's how we need to orient ourselves and reaction to these crises because a lot of people will see what happens, which is Boris Johnson will likely be replaced with someone more reactionary, which is that Japan's policy, just because Shinzo Abe was killed, doesn't mean that Japan is going to be any less of a puppet of imperialism. And just because you have some instability in places like France, just because you have a war in, in Ukraine, a proxy war in Ukraine that isn't going to end well for the United States, just because you have all of that doesn't mean you're going to have a change in policy. Uh, and that just speaks to the irrationality of this system. But nonetheless, I'm going to end my presentation part of this podcast 
So it's going to be a quicker one than usual. But I want to know, I mean, I don't see anyone in the queue. Does anyone in the queue or anyone that wants to comment, anyone has questions, uh, please do ask. I am more than willing. Okay, Ash is here. So I'm going to let Ash be the next caller. But please get in the queue if you have any questions, any comments. And then uh, and Fahim will be next. So good. All right. We'll end here with just some, some calls. All right. So Ash, you are up. Yeah, actually, do you worry about, like, you know, the uh, Shinzo Abe is dead and um, I, uh, Boris Johnson resigned and all this, uh, one by one, the prime ministers, so the presidents, maybe they'll start resigning in the West or at least in Western allied countries. And do you worry that they will be replaced by even more fascist people, like possibly a dictatorship can arise, like how, um, as, as far as I know, although my knowledge about Hitler is very little, he initially won three elections and then became a dictator. Do you worry that this type of situation might arise actually? Well, that's a, uh, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen like this. I don't think we're going to have a, a huge political shift in these like single case by case uh, basis where the, you know, the farthest of the right just takes over. I don't know if it'll happen, if it'll be that simple but i do think that when there is trouble among the bourgeoisie especially internally especially in the last few uh, generations we could say the last couple of generations we will see um we will see politics shift to the right so uh, you can see that in Japan, I mean, the current leader of Japan, I think it's Fumio Kishida. Uh, he is just as much, if not more, of a hawk than even than Shinzo Abe. So you don't have any kind of break there. And the person that in the UK they're talking about is Ben Wallace, who is the who's the Secretary of Defense. He is, I mean, he's a good advice. He's, he's a hawk. And, and everyone in the UK that I know is telling me that whoever replaces Boris Johnson will be further to the right of Boris Johnson, if you can believe that. So, yes, I, while I do not think that this will lead to some kind of like worldwide fascist movement occupying the halls of state power, I do think that it will lead politics to the right, further to the right, because none of this is being really pressured by any kind of organized leftist, anti-imperialist, progressive, whatever, socialist movement. And furthermore, I do think that at this time, what's complicated is that fascism out of the fall of fascism of the 20th century, right, out of the fall of Nazism in Eastern Europe out of the fall of the imperial Japan-led regime in the East has come a more complex set of politics since the end of World War II. In a sense, the United States has become not only the biggest purveyor of, uh, of chaos, but it's also been the biggest backer of fascism. And so we see that in Ukraine. Fascists in Ukraine gain direct U.S. support and European support, and, and all of its junior partners go right along with it. We see far-right politicians. We just saw in South Korea uh, the new president. He's on the far right. Uh, we see it all across uh, the a- Asia and Europe a- a- and across the world. The United States is propping up forces that ultimately are really, I think, the new kind of the new manifestation of what fascism is and will be, which is not necessarily a coherent singular political movement, but an overall manifestation of the most repressive and harshest form of imperialism that will, I think, have at its head the United States uh, in, in this kind of far-right uh, uh, hellscape, which I do think is coming in the United States and people, we need to prepare, but it's really the Democratic Party and the duopoly as a whole that's already 
there policy wise and institutionally. So I don't think it'll be like some takeover of some force. It will be um, the establishment kind of making a calculated decision. But I have yeah, Fahim, and the other. But, mm-hmm. Oh, oh sorry, 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 sorry. No, no, you can continue if you have yeah, another question yeah. or a comment. Well, yeah, and another thing that I noticed, like for example, about Roe v. Wade, the protesters entered inside the judges' houses, and if I contrast this with the January sixth insurrection, what I noticed among both <clears throat> the increasing left and right extremism is that. They can't come together and say some common things such as let's decrease the gas price or let's decrease the grocery price. Like the thing that I'm really confused about is that they have the guts to break the law and do whatever the hell they want to. But why can't they have the guts to do what is productive and together at least? I mean, not everything needs to be divisive, right? That's something that I don't understand. Like, wouldn't it be logical to the people participating in the protest? Hmm. Well, you bring up a good point there, you know, and I'll definitely, uh, I'll just make a comment and then move on to Fahim if that's okay. Um, but I, yes, I, well, what's interesting is that those who are on, who you name the left, I wouldn't necessarily consider the left. I would consider them members of liberal class, which is not so much interested in things that we could probably all agree upon, or at least majorities could agree upon in terms of economic um, reform, uh, certain policies, uh, universal social welfare policies, socialist-like policies to improve people's lives. Not really interested in that piece, right? I think that there is there are broad principles that could be united around, but I think the liberal class, what they're more interested in is bipartisan is partisanship is their electoral sort of um prospects and and i think a lot of the protests while there are many good people involved in them and there are definitely many people not thinking about what the democratic party thinks i do think that there is a significant faction though who gets who who on principle right will choose the path of electoralism over all us and even will shape their protest in that way. So that's why instead of connecting Roe v. Wade to all of these other issues, healthcare, all of this poverty, you know, we could, there's so much that could, that Roe v. Wade really connects to. All you get is sort of a very targeted protest against Supreme Court judges in a very particular way, which will get photo ops and certainly looks extreme, but the demands in place are not extreme at all. Actually, what it always it ends up amounting to is just a reversal of an escalation in the assault on working class people and oppressed people. That's usually what it amounts to. It doesn't amount to anything else. So it's not radical or even extreme. And I think that the far right, right, I, I, Big Teal said it in the chat, we can't underestimate the power of, of white nationalism and white nationalists and, and white supremacy in the United States. Uh, but I think the reason why they end up being kind of incoherent organizationally is because they are already backed and supported institutionally. And so their quest for power has no demand right their quest for attention for more visibility actually has no demand because the police because the courts because the economy because every aspect of the united states of society supports the white supremacist project just not in the form that they like so they can't actually make any demands that can unite anybody except a very small, uh, the very far right section of generally white America, right? Generally white America, not all white Americans, because there are definitely people on the far right who are not white who would support far right <laughs> projects, but um, generally that's what we're talking about. So, you know, I think that um, these forces are not serious about social change, they're not serious about principles that 
we would care about because they're mainly operating as operatives of the rich. I mean, that's what we're seeing. They're mainly operatives of the rich. So I'm going to get to Fahim now because I will have to go. My wife says she's on her way home and we have a guest um, in the apartment. So definitely need to be attentive to that. So Fahim, you've been waiting very patiently. You right now are the last caller. So uh, unless there's someone else, Fahim, I'll let you take it away. Hello. Hey, Danny. Can you hear me? I can't. Okay, so I, the fact that you mentioned uh, that people are trying are uh, seeing uh, in lieu of uh, the proxy war in Russia how it is hurting them, have um, you uh, in your uh, meetings with like normal people as well as your clients uh, talked about the fact of uh, uh, the uh, proxy war with uh, or the uh, Cold War with uh, China, because when I think of uh, people are trying uh, or seeing that it's uh, this war uh, with uh, Russia is uh, hurting uh, them, I'm uh, I am personally like, okay, if this war feels like a uh, a pimple on your butt, the one with China is going to feel like hemorrhoids. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, sorry for the graphic image, but uh, no, yeah, just good. wanted to hear your uh, uh, thoughts of what sure. you've uh, uh, observed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always mention China whenever I talk about Russia and vice versa, because I, I don't think you can talk about them separate anymore. I don't think you ever really could, not even during the Cold War, because you talk about them separately. But you definitely can't talk about them separately in the case of this new cold war because well i mean they're 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 inextricably linked not not just because the u.s is waging a war on both of them and building up a war against both of them but also because their partnership is such a huge part of world politics and the world economic situation today but i will say that you know in my conversations one thing i notice is that the propaganda has worked Right, many people do believe Russia is this big bad bully. Uh, many people don't have many good things to say about China, but at the same time, there's not any confidence, and this is a big problem. There's not any confidence in their own government, right? So that's one theme that is just across in in my you know prof- so-called professional therapy work, which I do part time, and you know in other conversations I've had with people outside of that. You owe, uh, it's almost universal unless I'm talking to other activists and other anti-imperialists and socialists. But for people who are not in that milieu, it's almost universal that there's dissatisfaction with the way their government works, with the way things are going. There's no hope in the future, generally. Uh, it, everything just kind of looks like a shitstorm. And I don't blame people. It, it does look like that. It feels like that. We are in the eye of it. But at the same time, the propaganda has worked, so there also isn't any kind of interest or focus. It's just the propaganda speaks, right? Everyone's just getting their information from the New York Times or from the AP or from wherever their phone is directing them to, right? So there's a lot of that going on, right? A lot of that. And I think the big danger of that, that Ash kind of alluded to, was the possibility of political leadership taking hold that's even further to the right, dare we say fascist, in political character, not just in its overall uh, 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 economic base. We're talking in, in, in societal base. We're talking foundation. We're talking about now politically in character, uh, more fascistic. And I think the development and strengthening and an increase in, in like a nihilism, right? In like, a, oh, well, there really is no alternative. So there is no hope for the future. So there is no point to any of this. And we'll fight, we'll complain, we'll uh, air out grievances, but we don't see any hope for change. I think only builds a further foundation to escalate things like a new cold war, because first of all, it leaves those who are driving this off the hook or driving this war machine off the hook. It lets them off the hook. 
they don't have to be accountable to anything because nobody expects anything of them. And that's a big problem that I have experienced that I am seeing that people don't have knowledge of things like the Belt and Road Initiative. They don't have knowledge of the ways in which the United States is descending and China is ascending. They don't have knowledge of the fact that there are robust partnerships around the world that are trying to curb sanctions, trying to build a more cooperative, a more win-win, to use China's language, economic order, trying to address climate change, that there are forces out there doing that in the world, let alone just thinking about the people who never get covered in the United States or in the Western world who are trying to do the same without any power at all, right? So without any political power, without any resources, people trying their best to spread the message, to build institutions, to build organizations, people trying to build unions in places that once were considered impossible to unionize, people trying to free political prisoners that have literally been impossible to free, people speaking out about things like Julian Assange. I mean, things that are dangerous. People standing up to the cops who are killing black people like Jalen Walker. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. We can go on and on. But without any hope, with nihilism reigning supreme, this chaos can serve only to worsen the political situation. So I think that's what I want to leave all of you with today is that it doesn't have to be that way. Because part of the reason why this political chaos is happening is because there is a shift happening in the overall world situation, that there is a decline in the American empire. There is this sort of unraveling of the Western imperialist order led by the United States that's happening as we speak. And for those of us within it, it makes sense that it would breed nihilism because we have been just assaulted with information warfare, counterinsurgency warfare. We have been propagandized. We have been shut off from the world, isolated, uh, made into, uh, in some respects, foot soldiers ideologically for all of this. Passive. We've been so discouraged and so alienated, so wrapped up in our own personal situations because of exploitation, you know, rising rates of exploitation that we can't we can't get out of this ideologically that this vacuum as uh, a person in the chat just said that a vacuum is happening and we don't have a left party we don't have a communist party we don't have an organized alternative right now that's what we need to focus on that is our task ahead that is our objective There really is no greater objective right now than to do whatever we can. All of us have different roles. I somehow stumbled into the media, even though I was before this uh, just bouncing around the left as an activist, doing union work and thinking that that's where I would probably stay. And then I started writing and then now I'm like doing articles, streams, and things like this uh, in order to provide this analysis and trying to uh, interrupt that vacuum at the ideological level and at the level of information warfare. And I can say that just like it was extremely difficult as an activist, extremely difficult to feel any hope for victory, it feels like that here in the media realm. It feels hard to talk about China. It feels difficult to talk about socialism. It's hard to counter the propaganda because we don't have the power, but we do have the objective. We do have the, we could say mission. We do have hopefully an overall vision that will drive us and continue to keep us motivated to study, to put in the work and then study and put in the work and uh, organize and study and put in the work and not let anyone's nihilism, whether it's our favorite podcaster, our friends, colleagues, comrades, no matter who they are, no, not let any of their nihilism take away from the fact that there is hope in the future. 
And that's because if, well, if you're a Marxist communist, you know that not only does everything change and is always changing, but never even under the most dire circumstance, under the most hegemonic uh, sort of a period where the domination of capital reigns supreme, not even in the most extreme scenario is there not an alternative either in existence or fighting for existence. Usually both are happening, and both are happening right now. Both are happening right now as we speak. There are peoples, there are movements that are doing it and are winning. And, and, and I think the focus here of this podcast has been on the new Cold War, has been on China and Russia. And in many ways, despite setbacks, despite provocations, despite it all, the United States is not winning. And imperialism is not winning in this regard. They're not going to win. They can't win short of blowing it all up. And so it's our, it's, it's really our test to keep, keep that in mind and to, you know, uh, avoid the nihilism, avoid the dead ends that come from the ways in which this chaos afflicting the West, afflicting the uh, headmasters of imperialism, uh, the way that is shaping out. But nonetheless, I am going to leave everybody. This podcast is going to end. Uh, We're heading toward the hour mark. I do want to say, though, that if you are new here, then please do follow the podcast. Uh, Make sure that you're following Cold War Brew. Make sure that you're, uh, um, um, you know, following me here on Colin. And then, of course, you know, just like I say in my streams, the best way to support me is at the link in my profile, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. About $50 per month away from my goal. Very grateful to only be so little away, but also understand that uh, people's situations are really hard. So if you can contribute, that's the way you can contribute to my work. Um, but with that said, everybody, I will be back again soon. Got some episodes to make up. And so, you know, as I continue to, to stream and do other things, I'll try to hop on here as well. So it's important for you to subscribe and to get those notifications. All right, everyone. Take care. Peace out. Bye-bye.